Let me ask you a question. Who's the head of the family? Now that's not intended to be a loaded question, but sometimes it is, isn't it, when you were to ask that question. Um, the Bible clearly answers that particular question, I think, for every, every generation. What we're going to try to do tonight is sort of give some preliminary, present some preliminary thoughts from the Scriptures that relate to what we're going to talk about, the Lord willing, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, and that is the relationship between men and women, specifically the restrictions on the roles of men and women teaching, and even the aspect of the differentiation between those roles that are found in that text. One of the things I think happens is that we fail to understand one particular text because we don't understand the basis of it somewhere else in the Scriptures. So it helps us to understand, maybe to look at uh, some of the more basic principles that are established, even from the very beginning, so that we understand more regulations that are given later on. So I want to consider uh, a related lesson in that respect. When we ask the question, who is the head of the family, uh, we recognize that the Bible answers that question. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, a passage that uh, Brother Joe read for us just a few moments ago, the text says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of church. Paul reinforces that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, talking about general submission, for I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So I think unequivocally what the Bible teaches is that the husband or the man is the head of the family, the marriage relationship. Now I say that first to understand that the Bible teaching that does not teach that as the product of social evolution. The fact that the man is at the head of the family, or that even in most homes he might be recognized that way, is not the result of human consensus. It's not through some patriarchal conspiracy where women have been put down through men. It's not because men are smarter. It's not because men are more emotionally stable. It's not because women are physically weaker, if that's true. None of those things relate to what we're talking about here from the standpoint of the mandate of Scripture. God is the one who says that man is the head of the family. So, husbands and fathers, the reason you're the head is not because you were elected to be the head, but because you were appointed to be the head. There's a difference between being elected and being appointed. Sometimes you might be appointed to something that you never raised your hand for. But there you are. You're in that spot and you're given that relationship and that responsibility. In biblical sense, that's where the father is and where the husband is in a marriage relationship. He's appointed to the position, given that responsibility. Now, how serious does that make that? Particularly for, for men in our own society to know that as they say I do, and they enter into a marriage relationship or they bear children into a relationship, that they are the ones who are responsible for leading that family spiritually, for providing for that family, for making the tough decisions that need to be made in the context of that family. I believe that many people misunderstand what the Bible teaches about headship. They misunderstand what the Bible teaches about the role of men and women in the church and in the family. Certainly that's true because of the cultural environment in which we're in. Many of the things we're going to talk about tonight are not easily accepted by our culture, and many times they are flat out rejected in every way. Even the the aspect of not accepting the language of Scripture that describes them. Remember, not too long ago we were in a study about this and uh, one person in the study was talking about Ephesians 5 and women ought to submit to their husband and this person said, well, I don't really like the word submit. Do you have another word for that? Well, there are some other words for that and I don't mind using another word as long as it means submit because that's what the Bible said. I, I suggest the word obey and that didn't go over very well either. But that's what the word submit means. It means to obey. And so we need to recognize that what the Bible says, it says in that regard. 
but it's not very well accepted in many ways. And I think we have to, rather than rail about that, we need to be able to look at the Bible and explain from the basis of what the Scripture says what's involved in the headship of the man and the submission of the woman in a marriage relationship. I believe what we have to recognize is it goes back to an original design. That that circumstance exists because of creation. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, as Moses would explain to us where we came from and how all this was established, he talks about the, he mentions the creation of woman. And he says in chapter 2 verse 18 that God created the woman as a helper suitable for the man. And sometimes we have some discussions about this aspect of what the helper suitable means and the idea that, that men and women are comparable to one another and that's certainly involved in the original term, that they are distinct but they are also individuals that complement one another in the sense that one can, uh, one can build up and fill in the gaps, so to speak, of the other. Paul reaffirmed in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 9, as we said before, that the woman was created for man. And that's where the word helper means, but again, that kind of throws us off sometimes. We might be tempted to think that the word helper is to be interpreted in some way as if the woman is created as less for the man, that because she was created for the man, and that's what the text says, that the woman was, is less or inferior to the man. And none of that's true. She is not just a helper, but she is a helper. And there's a difference in that concept in terms of how we think and certainly in what the Bible presents. One way I think that's interesting about this, look at this word, uh, in, uh, it's the word ezer, if I'm pronouncing that right, in the Hebrew, and it's used of God. So when I say a woman, it, when, I, when I suggest to you that as the Bible says that the woman's created as a helper does not inf involve inferiority, that's easy to recognize because the same terminology is talking, talks about my relationship to God or more specifically God's relationship to His people. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29, Happy are thou, O Israel, who is likened to thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield and thy help, who is the sword of thy excellency. So Moses says that God is Israel's helper. Now, God's not inferior to Israel, but it depicts this aspect that God provides for Israel that which is needed. In the 115th Psalm, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So God is the helper of Israel. Same thing mentioned in the 2021st Psalm where he says there that uh, my help cometh from the Lord. So the, so the aspect here, I think, of that new terminology is that it presents the ability of one to supply for the other. And maybe in some texts, the willingness of one to supply for the other. But certainly it presents the aspect of the purpose in the creation of the woman. That the woman was created after the man in order to provide for him or to help him. And therefore she's called that, use that word to talk, she's called a helper. Now that's the original design. The man was created first and then the woman... The woman was created comparable to the man to be a helper for him. It didn't take long for that particular design in creation to be attacked, to come under assailant. And Satan's attack on the design, again, is an important element of what we recognize in terms of headship and submission. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll talk about the verse later on, the Lord willing, the aspect of why the woman's submission to man, and God, Paul goes all the way back to the aspect of the events of Genesis chapter 3. But we know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And that is that Satan gets Adam and Eve to sin against the Lord and the introduction and the inauguration of sin. But what I want us to recognize is before that takes place, the picture of marriage relation, the, picture, the position of men and women in the creative design is a beautiful thing. 
that this is the marriage of marriages, so to speak, I guess we can look at that. Two individual people who, as God designed them, relate to one another in such a way that God says that when they're joined together, they become a single person. That's fascinating, isn't it? That God would create two individuals, and yet, in the context of the relationship that He established for them, they become one person. Now, they didn't physically become one person. They were still Adam and Eve. The oneness is in the relationship that God designed for them. The reason they're that way is because they respected God's role for them, and as they acted out that role, they were one person. The oneness is involved, you see, the unity is involved in the covenant, the relationship that was given them. But then sin comes along, and sin has the ability to ruin everything. So Genesis 3 describes the impact of sin on the relationship between the husband and the wife. After the sin of Adam and Eve, the Lord pronounced the consequences of their sin, and we're familiar with that. And He talks first to the woman, and talks about her relationship to the husband in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now that's, a, that's an interesting passage and an intriguing one. And I think it's a much discussed one as far as trying to understand and translate what that means in terms of the future of the woman and the future of the relationship between the husband and the wife because that's certainly what's in view here. Some see this as describing that, that her desire would be for her husband, as describing the sexual desire that a woman might have for a man, and that that's what's involved, the idea of one desiring another. But I don't think that's the thought here at all. I would suggest to you that's not a curse, that's a blessing to women like men. And that's not the idea here that's involved. What is involved, I think, is borne out in other translations better than in the King James or in the New King James translation. And it's also borne out in looking to see how the text is used, same checks and grammar is used other places. The New English translation says this, I will greatly increase your labor pains. With pain you will give birth to children. You will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. And so the aspect, and I think that's probably a pretty good translation of the use of the term. And the reason I would say that is not because I know Hebrew or even Greek very well, but because what we're able to recognize is that this particular grammatical construction, the words and the verbs themselves, are used almost identically again in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. And we recognize that is the event in which Cain has killed his brother, and God comes and warns Cain about the consequences, you see, of what will happen to him. This is before he kills his brother and the anger that he has. He says, he says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. There's that same language. So he says to Cain, be careful here. It's a warning. That sin's going to want to control you. You must subdue it. You must dominate it. Its desire is that you come under its control, but you must bring it under your control. Now, when we compare those two statements and the other translations of that, what seems evident to me is that that parallels what's been stated to the woman earlier about the curse of the sin that's involved. But what he's saying here is that you will want, you see, to dominate, you will want to control your husband, but he will dominate you. And so the desire of a woman to control or manipulate or in any way you see to be over a man is countered by the fact that he will dominate her in society. Now I ask you, how does that play out in society? Uh, to me that seems to be a pretty good picture of what's happened in society. What we might think of, you see, as the battle of the sexes. <laughs> the man and woman against one another. 
And one of the real battlegrounds for all of that is not just in society and well, you know uh, the sports arena or whatever it might be. The real battleground is you see in the marriage relationship. As men and women are brought together in the marriage relationship based upon the fact that they want to be together, yet in the context of being together, they fight against one another. Now that's not the result of God's design. What we saw in God's design was unity. What we saw in God's design was perfection, the aspect of getting along and being one person and joined together. What you see after sin is much different than that. So what is the result of the impact of sin on the marriage relationship? I believe this passage presents that. That the result is not unity. It's disunity. And it results in further sin away from God. And that's precisely what we see even in the Genesis account. The time you get to Genesis chapter 6, the whole world is evil and God says I'm bringing a judgment upon it. That it's sexually immoral and there's all types of things going on that God never designed and the marriage relationship has been totally set aside. One man for one woman. For man's own desires. And that's why we see today. That's why marriages fail. It's because sin has entered into the picture. Its impact is on the original pattern for God for, of God for men and women. Now I remind you again of what that original aspect was, and that is the woman was created for the man, that there was the aspect of a suitable helper given to provide for him, and there was the aspect of the headship of man. And I mention that too because that's in the Genesis story as well. What we're told later on in Scripture that we just saw from Ephesians chapter 5 or Ephesians chapter 11 and New Testament passages. And even, I believe, by implication in the history of the Old Testament passage is the man was to be the head of the family. And God spoke to the patriarchs, to the men, not to the women, for the most part. And so there was the aspect here of men were to be in, were to be in charge, so to speak, or they were the head. But in, even in the aspect of the temptation that was made by Satan to get man to do what was wrong, he attacked that pattern from the very beginning. You think about what Adam said about Eve. And before, this was before sin came in, before Satan ever arrived on the scene. What did, what did Adam say about his wife? That God had, this now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Adam said that. He says, this is flesh of my flesh. This is me. This is, we are one person. You see what he's extolling is the greatness of that relationship, the unity of that relationship. But when we look at this aspect, you see, of, of later on, we recognize that when the New Testament writer, particularly Paul, is addressing the situation, he goes back to that original circumstance and says as well, this is the relationship that really God's design and the proof of that is God used the marriage relationship that was ordained in Genesis chapter 3 as a reflection of the relationship between him and his people. The passage that Joe read for us just a few moments ago. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies for he loves his, for he loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. You, you, you talk that way much about your relationship to the uh, to Jesus Christ, or do we put that many in, in many of the articles that we write about the church? <laughs> what is the church? Well, it's the flesh and bones of Jesus. We might say body, but usually we have the idea of some institutional thing. But the idea that's what Paul's presenting the the evidence of from the standpoint of both the marriage and the church is that it reflects this close, intimate relationship that Adam talked about at the very beginning when he saw Eve. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
When sin emerged initially, when Satan came on the scene, you think he knew that? You think he could other way understand what God had done by bringing a man and a woman together and what a wonderful thing that was and how their working together as a team was really going to make it difficult for them to sin against God, that God's arrangement was a good arrangement? I think he understood all of that. So what did he do? He came on the scene and immediately began talking to who? The head? No. Now Adam was there with her, but he didn't talk to Adam, he talked to Eve. Because the intent was not just to get them to sin, but to disrupt the relationship. So that if sin became the choice, it was a choice that was initiated not by the head, but by someone who other, other than the head. And so he approached Eve. Adam was silent. And he failed to lead. He failed to, to, to enter in when he should have entered in and said, oh, wait a minute, honey, we're not going to do this. He didn't do that, did he? And so she was deceived, is what Paul says. And man sinned. Now that isn't any way intended to try to throw the blame on Eve or to aspect of responsibility. You look at the rest of the Bible and you recognize when it talks about the sin of the garden, it talks about the sin that was initiated by Adam. And it's Adam's sin that Paul addresses as, the, as far as the consequence of it. Because that's, it's clear from the text that both of them were responsible for sinning against God. But what we need to see in this, and the reason I bring it up, is that what Satan did is he attacked the relationship between the man and the woman. Not just the relationship between God and man and law. Not just the relationship between what God said and what they were going to do. He attacked the role of the man and the woman in the marriage in Genesis chapter 3. And that's had impact ever since. Now, what's the gospel say to that? I read an article recently by Barry Kirchival, who's Brent's dad, uh, that pointed to the aspect of the reversal of the curses and the promises of God that were made to Abraham. You go, Genesis chapter 12, God made promises to Abraham. He, told, he, he promised him that he would give his descendants a land, that he, he would provide for them uh, a multitude of people, a nation, and that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. We're familiar with those three promises that God made to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, and then again in 15, and then in 17, and then to the rest of the patriarchs. Now, that, those, those promises have enormous implications in terms of the history of Israel. What was pointed out in this particular piece was that those three promises, or those blessings, ultimately are connected with the curses of sin given in Genesis chapter 3, in the sense that in those promises, there is a taking away or a reversing of some of the curses that were presented in Genesis chapter 3. The curse of the ground that would bring forth, it would only bring forth the truth through great toil and difficulty. The man would sweat, uh, by the sweat of his brow, would make a living for himself. Is reversed in the promise of, of Abraham's descendants that he would give them a land flowing with milk and honey. And rather than them serve the land, the land would serve them. And ultimately, it reflected in the rich blessings and security that was found in Christ. I'm reminded of Amos chapter 9, where Amos is talking about uh, the aspect of God raising up the tabernacle of David and bringing back the captives so that they can have the blessings of God. And he references this aspect of the land promise. What's interesting is that James takes that same passage in Amos chapter 9 and he brings it in the New Testament and connects it with the promises that were made to the gospel and preaching the gospel to all the Gentiles, that the Gentiles ought to be included in the kingdom. Why? Because God said back in the time of Amos in Amos chapter 9 that God was going to bring back the tabernacle of David and the the people would live in the land that would provide for them. Not just the Jews, but all the people. Now, so what I'm saying is that there was spiritual implication to that promise. The curse of death. That man would die and return to the ground is reversed in the seed promise. 
And that's again seen in the context of the book of Genesis and the patriarchs that God healed the barrenness of Sarah and He healed the barrenness of Rebekah and others. And He created out of those individuals who seemingly could not have children a great nation of individuals as the sand of the sea. And so that in the progress of generations, death that would interrupt that was overcome by God's plan and God's design. But then the final fulfillment of that was the coming not of seed, plural, but seed singular in the coming of Christ. That through this seed would come Christ, one who was born of a woman who overcome death through the power of a resurrection. So the promises to Abraham are presented, in the over, are presented as an overcoming or reversal of the curse of sin. But then, there's, there's in all of this, that's not what I want yet, it's liquor, maybe it is. There's Genesis 3.16. The curse placed upon the woman that she would desire to manipulate and control her husband, but he would dominate her. And so there would be this conflict within the marriage relationship, and this lack of unity in the marriage relationship. How would that be reversed? In what way would it be pictured as being reversed in preaching of the gospel and the consummation of the promises made to Abraham? We look at Ephesians chapter 5, and I don't think that's too hard to see. That what we recognize here is that Paul is presenting the marriage relationship in connection with the relationship of Christ and His church because the relationship between Christ and His church is presented as a fulfillment of the marriage relationship that was established in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 2. So how's the language of this point out to us? Ephesians chapter 5 verse 24. The women are to be subject as Christ, as the church is subject to Christ. The women are to sub- submit themselves to their husbands. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 25. Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. And then he says, just as the Lord does the church, you are to care for and nourish one another. Verse 30, we are members of His body, of His flesh and bones. Not hard to see where that comes from, as we said before. In verse 5, verse 32, Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and His church. You see, the Apostle is making a connection here. That the Gospel presents, you see, the ability of individuals in terms of the curse of sin in the marriage relationship to be free from that. And to understand what it means to be free from that curse through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and through Christ's relationship with His people. Certainly, the least I could see in this is that Ephesians chapter 5 portrays the original intention of marriage in the context. That what's here is a proper relationship between submission and headship. The submission and headship are not opposed to one another. They don't strive with one another. There's no tension between the subjection of God's people and the authority of Christ. Is there? There shouldn't be. And there isn't in a church that's without blemish and perfect and glorious in His sight. His people willingly submit to His authority. They fully recognize who He is. And they submit to His authority. Yet on the other side of that, there's no tension between Jesus' transcendence above us and the fact that He will sacrifice for us. Is there? He easily came down to this earth, if I can use that terminology. He did not hesitate to come to this earth and die for us. Why? He's so much higher than we are. He is the head of us, yet He sacrifices for us. You see? And that's what's presented as the church's relationship to Christ is compared with the relationship to the marriage. It certainly has powerful implications in terms of the church. But let me suggest to you, it has just as powerful implications when we get to the aspect of headship and submission. It's helped us to understand what this is about. 
that Christ exercises authority through selfless sacrifice. And that's what He said in John. I'll draw all men unto Myself when I'm lifted up. And John explains that. He says what He was talking about there is His death. He wasn't talking about drawing men by being exalted into heaven or forcing or coercing men to follow Him. He was saying, I'm going to go to the cross and die and people will be drawn by the fact that I'm going to die for them. There's the power of love and self-sacrifice. And so what does Jesus do? He lays down His life for His bride, the church. As husbands lay down their lives for their wives. He nourishes and cherishes the church as husbands do for their wives. He treats them as their own body. He treats us as His own body in the roles that He provides for us and the blessings. And ultimately, He receives us in the glorious splendor. And that's what the husband does for the wife. Now the other side of that is the church is designed to reflect the other side of that, that the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. Not as one who's being dominated. Not as one you see who's being coerced through force. The submission of the church is a response to the love of God, just as the wife submits as a response to the love of the husband. Not because they're forced to do so, but because they desire to honor and respect their husbands. That's what Paul says in the end. See that? The husbands love their wives, and the wives respect their husbands. Paul even quotes Genesis 2 here, doesn't he? Verse 24. Prior to sin, to show that God's plan in the beginning, both for marriage and for our eternal relationship to God, was a relationship of submission and headship. Now, real quickly, there is in this context as well the environment of mutual submission. But I rarely speak on this without pointing out that what I truly believe about these passages as I put them together, and that is the verse 21 is a preface to everything that follows in terms of the relationships. Paul says, submit to one another in the fear of God. That's how he begins this discussion. He talks about the woman, and then he talks about the man, and then he talks about the servant, he talks about the, uh, about the master, he talks about the father, he talks about the children. In all of those relationships in Ephesians chapter 5, there is the aspect of authority and submission. This one is ahead, this one is to submit. Yet, as he, before he ever gets to the details of that, he says, all of us, you all must submit to one another in the fear of God. Because submission is the environment in which all of this, you see, takes place. The aspect of authority and the exercise of authority of one who is the head is not exercised in any way apart from the willingness of the person who is submitting to submit freely. Now, a passage that points this out, Mark chapter 10. Jesus called His disciples to Himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever you desire to be first shall be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. That passage remind you of anything we've been talking about in Ephesians chapter 5? Where the apostle takes Jesus Christ and connects him with the aspect of being the people of God. I'm convinced that these words are essential and powerful for our understanding of the relationship between headship and forward in the kingdom of God and submission in the kingdom of God. Whether we're talking about husbands or elders or deacons or evangelists or other leaders within God's kingdom, no one is allowed to lord it over anybody else. God never designed it that way. He didn't put some people in charge and give them responsibility so they could exercise authority over someone and take advantage of anybody else. And that's what Jesus says. It's like that in the world where you live. It's not like that in the kingdom of God. 
So we have a great tendency sometimes to view submissiveness and yielding to authority always in the carnal context of one person being worth more than another or one person forcing another individual to submit. The home nor the church is the military nor is it a corporation. It is a kingdom relationship defined by the words of God and by the relationship that God has with His people. And that's the only way that you and I ever need to speak about it or to reference it. The relationship of the home or the kingdom. The church, God and His people. So when we go out to find individuals that will be elders and, and rule over the Lord's church who will be in positions of authority, we need to be more concerned with finding individuals who are submissive in their heart rather than individuals you see who have made it to the top by stepping on other people. Because that's not the model. In Brother Kirchival's article, he mentioned an encounter that was sort of similar to one that I experienced and that sort of caught my attention. Several years ago, a couple, he said a couple needing help with their marriage came into his office and the husband then, with a very sour look on his face, began the discussion. He looked sternly at his wife. He said, would you tell her that since I'm the head, she has to obey me? How would you have answered that? Is this the kind of relationship that God expects people to have? Is that, kind of, is that the kind of approach He expects the husband to have in the relationship? Brother Barry's answer to that as he puts it in the article is insightful. He said to the man, who told you that you're, head of your, that you're the head of your wife? And of course the man went immediately to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22. And Brother Barry says, well, was that text written to you? Who's he talking to here? Because Ephesians chapter 5 verse 22 says... Wives submit to your husbands. He was not talking to husbands. He's talking to wives. He doesn't start talking to the. He is not talking to the husband until he gets down to verse twenty-five. And when he gets to the husband, he talks about love. He doesn't mention headship at all. Isn't that fascinating? And we do it just the opposite of that. When we we talk to the husband, say, "Okay, you're in charge, and you got to submit." No, that's not the way God does it. You see, because the responsibility of submission that makes the environment of headship workable is a voluntary submission. What's the responsibility of a man if his wife won't submit? If she just won't come under his headship and won't submit to what he wants to do and he does, she doesn't allow him to lead? What's the, risk, what's the response or reaction of the man who finds himself in that situation? Look for me in the Scriptures and find the path that tells him how to react to that. Is he punish her in some way? Is there something he's supposed to do that exercises authority over her? Or is he just supposed to love her? <laughs> Even though she doesn't submit, he's just supposed to love her. In the same way with, you see, the man who won't lead, who won't take charge, who won't make decisions for himself. I've got to do it. He won't do anything. What's the woman supposed to do? Submit to him. Because that's what the Scriptures teach. Now, what we recognize is that what happens, and certainly what happens correctly, is that there is both submission and the exercise of authority conjointly and voluntarily in the relationship so the two individuals become one flesh and one person. That's a consummating phrase. I like coming back to that, not only because it's mentioned not only in the marriage relationship, but it's so prevalent in the understanding of our relationship to God as being in His church, being His body. But it plays out also in how we treat one another. In one of Tolstoy's novels, he describes two marriages. And I'm not very familiar with the work, but I get this from someone else, and it made, made an impression upon me. But in the novel, he presents the description of both a marriage that's good and a marriage that's bad. In one particular scene in the good marriage, he describes the first quarrel that these people had in their marriage. You remember the first quarrel you ever had with your wife or your husband? 
That's what's presented here. But this marriage is based upon, in the context you see, the way it ought to be. And I want to read this. It's sort of a lengthy reading, but I want to read it because it made an impression upon me. And we're about out of time, so I'll read fast. The man's name is Levin. It says, Levin had thought there could never be any relations between himself and Kitty other than those based on tenderness, self-respect, and love. But the first month of their marriage showed otherwise. Their first quarrel arose when Levin had ridden over to inspect a new farm. He returned half an hour late because he'd attempted a shortcut and got lost. He rode home thinking only of her, of her love, of her own happiness. And the nearer he came to the house, the warmer grew his tenderness for her. He rushed into the room with a feeling that was even stronger than the one with which he had gone to propose to her. Yet with all of a sudden, met with a grim expression he had never seen on her face before. He tried to kiss her and she pushed him away. What's the matter? You're having a nice time, she began, trying to appear calm and venomous. But the moment she opened her mouth, she burst into a flood of reproaches, senseless jealousy, and everything else that had been tormenting her during the half hour she had spent sitting motionless at the window. It was then that he clearly understood for the first time what he had failed to understand when he led her out of the church after the wedding. He understood that she was not only close to him, but that he could now, now tell where she began and he, where she ended and he began. <laughs> Instant phrase. Rick died where she ended and he began. He realized it from the agonizing feeling of division into two parts, which he experienced at the moment. He felt hurt, but immediately realized that he could not be offended with her because she was himself. For a moment he felt like a man who, receiving a sudden blow from behind, turns around angrily with a desire to return the blow, only to find that he had accidentally struck himself and that there was no one to be angry with, and he had to endure and do his best to assuage the pain. <laughs> That's a fascinating illustration, isn't it? She smacks him in the side of the head with a reproach and he turns around with the idea, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about this, but then realizes as he turns that he just hit himself because she's him. So what's he going to do about that? What do you do when you hit yourself? You reproach yourself? You talk bad about yourself? Do you, you see, get back at yourself? No, you nourish and cherish your own body. You find a place where you can heal and you try to get rid of the pain and try to get rid of that which hurts. You see, that's a totally different approach, isn't it? Why? Because she's not her, she's me, and I'm not him. She, we're one. <laughs> so anything that she does, I do. Anything she does to me, you see, is done to myself. I think that's fascinating to me. He says at the end, all he had to do was to try and help the aching part to bear it. And this he did. Just try to heal it. Because it's one person. Well, that's what Jesus did for me, isn't it? He just healed it. He loved me so much. He healed it because his people are his body. Thank you for your attention. How can I submit to myself? How could I not obey myself? How could I not love myself? You see, these things that are born in the biblical text and the language itself help us to understand not only how to react to one another, but ultimately what these very concepts mean. The reality. Submission and headship, part of God's design. The road, the pathway to oneness is submission and headship. Thank you for your attention. Uh, I'm way over time. I appreciate you being so patient with me. Take out your songbooks. If you're not a child of God, we want to invite you to be submissive to the will of God. God certainly exercises authority over you, but He has expressed that authority not by coercing you or reproaching you, but by dying for you. Will you respond to that in love and submission while we stand in love?